Welcome to another episode of Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. I'm David Airdrie, Executive Director. We're here to provide you with updates on diagnosis and management of thrombosis, featuring interviews with authors of recent publications and highlights of education programs. Today's episode is our third from the ISTH 2022 meeting in London, and it's Tuesday, July 12th. Our guest today will take us through some highlights of sessions that they've participated in. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll have our guests introduce themselves as they discuss their highlights. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you here. And uh, we can't wait to uh, to hear what your highlights are from today's program. Okay, great. So I'm Jamil Abdul-Rayman. I'm Thrombosis Toronto General Hospital. And we're joined to get today by Dr. Mark Crowther uh, at uh, St. Joseph McMaster and by Dr. Taylor Drury uh, at St. Paul's uh, in uh, Vancouver. Dr. Crowther, what did you uh, see today that you thought was interesting? Yeah, thanks. It, there's lots of super stuff here. It's nice to get back to a face-to-face meeting. Uh, the meeting, uh, the session, the first thing this morning, which was on uh, uh, bleeding manifestations with anticoagulants, it was a state-of-the-art symposium. Uh, the first speaker talked about animal models of bleeding. You might not think that's particularly relevant to, to Thrombosis Canada, but of course, bleeding is the major avoidable complication of anticoagulants, and all of us who prescribe these drugs cause people to bleed by definition. Uh, and it, the most interesting thing I saw in that talk was, uh, as I, I made a comment in the session, that we kind of use tranexamic acid a lot nowadays. We kind of I use the word slosh it around at fairly random doses. And he actually had some really interesting data from animal models that suggest that you kill animals if you give them too much tranexamic acid, which was not something I was aware of. Pretty convincingly, in fact, when they went up to their maximum dose of tranexamic acid in their animal model, they killed all the animals. Uh, and then if you gave too little, they bled to death. And so I hadn't really given any thought about the fact that tranexamic acid probably has some dose titration. Was that with thrombotic death? Do we yeah, know? My, yeah, and they actually did autopsies on yeah. the animals, and it was microthrombi. It, they, they, they died of diffuse clotting, it sounds like. And then the second speaker was talking about, did a really nice summary of all of the data on the use of tranexamic acid to mitigate bleeding complications in, in humans. Uh, and, and I was surprised, you know, obviously I think we all know there's been a lot of really good high quality studies in that domain, but really hadn't thought about the fact that the studies included not only disparate patients, so women with major obstetrical related bleeding, trauma, intracranial hemorrhage, but also that the, the doses and the frequency and the infusion schedule of the tranexamic acid varied a lot. And suddenly it appears that maybe that's, maybe that, you know, we say it may or may not work in, in, in a con, indication X, but maybe we're using the wrong dose or the wrong interval or the wrong infusion or the, you know, maybe we should be using or not using follow-up doses. So it struck me as being really interesting that I've never actually thought about that. I just think of, you know, we should use tranexamic acid without any further thought about whether we should use a lot or a little bit or early or late or really interesting. And then Deb Siegel presented her summary of, you know, when you should restart anticoagulants. And, and I think the seminal message from that is one that I know that Thrombosis Canada has talked about a lot, and that is that the key thing is that every patient who bleeds should have a plan for restarting their anticoagulants after they recover and only the exceptional patient should not have their anticoagulants restarted which is the what not what happens in the real world i think we all know that in the real world the large majority of patients who present to the hospital with a major anticoagulant associated bleeds don't have their anticoagulants restarted and i think we've all seen cases where you know horrific otherwise preventable outcomes occur as a result of that. Uh, so I, I know that was the best session for me. I think of maybe the entire meeting of, you know, a session where I thought it spanned from animal models all the way to humans, and it talked about bleeding, which is the single most important complication of the stuff we do. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I remember one comment that you had made at a conference a long time ago about that. Um, I think it was rivaroxaban or anticoagulation doesn't cause bleeding, but it makes bleeding worse. The only way rivaroxaban would cause someone to bleed is if you shot someone with a bullet of rivaroxaban. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, yeah the, the, the so the the line is the uh, warfarin only cause, causes bleed unless unless fired or doesn't cause bleeding unless fired from a cannon. Yes, and, and I have a long story which some of you have heard about. Uh, the pickup, the dry guy, dry, the dry guy driving his truck down the 401, which is the big highway in Ontario for those who aren't from Ontario, and and his pill bottle is sitting on the dashboard, and as the truck tips over, the pill bottle top flies off, and a warfarin tablet comes out and transects his carotid. That that's warfarin caused bleeding, and the other thing is that you know you all know that the reason we use anticoagulants is it makes it easier for the gastroenterologist <laughs> to find where the blood's coming from. Uh. So uh, yeah, you're entirely correct, and that's a common misconception. Like people will say, well. You know, the warfarin caused the bleeding. I said, no, the warfarin did not cause the bleeding. It, it really didn't. The, the, the gastric ulcer caused the bleeding. The warfarin made it worse. Yes. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it. I, I tell that story to many trainees. It's absolutely, yeah. I think it's good because it really is, the, you know, it helps people to understand because oftentimes surgeons will say, well, you know, it, the warfarin caused the bleeding. We'll say, no, 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 you know, the, the aortic dissection caused the bleeding the aspirin, clopidogrel, and mm -hmm. warfarin made it worse. Right, yeah. And we can deal with the reversal of that, but right. we still need GI to go in or neurosurgeons yeah. to go in and do their thing. Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. That's, that's great. Thanks so much. And um, Dr. Drury, tell us about what you saw today. Uh, yeah, so this has been, uh, just to echo those comments, has been a great uh, meeting so far. This is my first in-person ISTH meeting I haven't attended virtually in the past. Um, I was just... I was just at a, an oral communication session this afternoon that was really interesting. It was talking about the use of DOAX at the both extremes of weight, the high end and the low end. Mm -hmm. It was focusing a lot on using levels to adjust therapy, which I know is a bit controversial in the past, and a lot of different variations in practice patterns. You know, if we the the first session was looking at uh, people at the high ends of weight, you know, well over 140 kilograms, BMI is well over 40. Uh, in a population in Wales, and their levels both, particularly looking at a pixaban, both at standard dose, you know, 5 BID and the redu even the reduced dose, 2.5 BID, their levels will all within the ranges. We all recognize that those ranges are very large, and we don't really know what to do with the numbers, but I did find it at least reassuring uh, that, that none of the levels were sub-therapeutic or, or, mm -hmm. or sub, you know, on yeah. targets, not technically yes, the therapeutic. the on-therapy range. On-therapy right. range, exactly. Um, you know, and we've, I would say that, you know, we've been, we've been using them in patients at that, at that weight, at least for maintenance therapy, and I find it at least reassuring to see that numbers on a, on a larger scale are, are still within that on-treatment range. You know, again, moving forward, you know, whether whether we would continue to check levels like that moving forward, I, I don't know, but I, I did find that data reassuring. Yeah, right, and it was in keeping with the latest guidelines from ISTH, the 2021 yeah. guidelines, and I was happy to see that they showed the reduced dose, because before this, I wasn't aware of any data for the reduced dose DOAC in patients over 120 kilograms. Were you aware of any? No, same, and, uh, and as they mentioned in the session, the ISTH, the new ISTH guidelines mm -hmm. that, that are guidance statements that you referenced, you know, did specifically mention that there is, uh, you know, a bit of a dearth of data specifically for yeah. a Pixaban. And so this is kind of mm -hmm. you know, potentially filled a bit of a small gap there, which I found I found yeah. helpful. Uh, Pixaban is certainly my go-to uh, DOAC, <laughs> I would say. Um, and on, on the other end of the spectrum, looking at low body weight, again, very similar mm -hmm. study design. This one was done in, in the UK. Uh, people under 50 kilograms, you know, all the way down to, they had a few patients in the, in the 30s and low 40s. 
Um, bit, the, the results are a bit more scattered just because of the study design. But again, for the most part, they were all within the on, on treatment ranges. That's probably the area that I would be most uncomfortable with in, in using uh, DOAX, especially up front in the loading doses. And so they didn't really address that issue. But again, I found mm-hmm. the overall uh, numbers reassuring and, and something that I'll certainly consider at least yeah, talking to patients yeah. about as an option. It was interesting that they found the characteristics with the low body weight, you know, patients with cancer, poor kidney function, and these people are going to be high risk of bleeding anyways, right? Um, but yeah, it's definitely tricky with anticoagulant. They're going to be high risk of bleeding. Is it lower with DOAC or warfarin? Who knows? But definitely patients we need to be cautious with. Certainly. Yeah, no, definitely. Great. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much for you both. Thank you for uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was great. Really enjoyed it. And uh, great meeting. And thanks to Thrombosis Canada for all the good work you're doing. Well, that was a great discussion. And uh, thank you for listening to Clot Conversations from Thrombosis Canada. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions on the podcast. If you have any recommendations for future podcasts, please send them to us at info at thrombosiscanada.ca. Please subscribe so that you are notified about the release of new episodes. And don't forget to check out our website for education programs, clinical tools, and guides. Also, please consider donating to Thrombosis Canada to support our ongoing efforts to reduce morbidity and mortality due to thrombosis. It's been great to do these episodes from London and look forward to new episodes of Clot Conversations in the coming weeks and months. Take care. 